0: Bad funding choices for your small business this week on Debt Free and 30 starting right now. This is Debt Free and 30. Here's your host, Doug Hoyes. Bad funding choices for small and medium-sized businesses, that's the title whether that's what we'll actually get around to talking about I don't know. My guest today returning is David Barnett. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing great today, Doug. Thanks for having me back. Now, having you back, the last time you were sitting here in my studio in Kitchener, according to my notes, was March 9th, 2020, which was just before the economy shut down, like literally like a week before you happened to be in Kitchener. And we recorded the podcast, which then I don't think we actually released until early in June. And I actually had you on Zoom to do a follow-up just because so much had changed in that uh, that period of time. Uh, Where are you today? Where are you based out of?
1: So I'm in Moncton, New Brunswick, and uh, I do business with people all over the world, but mostly in the U.S. and um, up in the Ontario area, some in Alberta and D.C. as well. And primarily what you do is what? I help people through the process of either buying or selling a business. And primarily what I refer to as Main Street businesses, which I define broadly as businesses with earnings under half a million dollars. So... Classic,
0: small or medium-sized business is what you, what you deal with. So mm-hmm. we are recording this towards the end of May. I don't know what the date is because I can't even remember what the year is. This will will probably air in June just to give people a, a an idea of, of when we are recording this. And so maybe I'll have to have you on two minutes before I actually issue it because so much will have changed just like what happened last time. But let's start off with um, what you are seeing out there today as compared to what you were seeing perhaps two years ago. And and let's be very specific in terms of lending, okay? So I'm a small business person and I either want to start my business or expand my business. So the natural thing I would think of was, well, I'll go to the bank, get some money. So what are you seeing bank-wise now? What were you seeing before
1: this all started? Yeah, sure. So um, before, you know, the, the pandemic happened, um, people would make that trip to the bank and a lot of them would be disappointed. Um, banks, you know, are very stringent in making sure that they avoid risk. That's their job. The, the money that they lend out is your neighbor's grocery money. So they're supposed to be very careful with that. And as a result of that, a lot of these small business acquisitions or startups, um, some of them get done with different government guarantee programs, which removes risk from the bank. A lot of them get done with people's personal credit resources, So they get a line of credit on their home or they use a credit card or a line of credit, or uh, maybe they're able to sign their name with a good credit score on some lease financing for some equipment, things like that. And so that was pretty much what was happening before. And I would say that more than half of the business acquisition deals I would help people with in Canada um, didn't have any commercial financing. So no bank business loan. That isn't to say that the buyer didn't borrow some money in their w- w- in their own personal capacity to do the deal.
0: So just to be clear and on that then, if I went to the bank and said, I wanna buy this business, will you loan me a million bucks? Even before the pandemic, the bank was saying, yeah, no, we're not doing that.
1: Yeah, um, and then if you went down from the business banking officers over to the personal and said, I wanna build a new swimming pool, will you give me a line of credit? Some of them might, and then people might use that money to buy a business.
0: Gotcha. Or if you said, I'd like to get a HELOC against my house, they don't really care what you're using it for so long as you qualify, and I would then use that money in my business. Or as you said, I'd get a unsecured line of credit, or I'd use my credit cards if it was a small enough business, and I, I would do it that way. So banks have never really been the major source of funding directly to a small business, is what you're telling me. Like, not in the last few years.
1: Yeah, the... If the, if the business was qualified, then banks would want to do it. They'd even compete with each other to do the right deals. But a lot of the deals just wouldn't qualify with the banks.
0: So let's assume that this pandemic is going to be over and things are going to improve in the summer or in the fall or in 2022 or whenever. What is your advice to me as a business person who, let's take the case where my business did poorly, as a result of the pandemic and I understand there were some that did very well and we can talk about those too but if my business did poorly as a result of of the events of the last year and a half what should be going through my head should it be well let's put the gas pedal down and full steam
1: ahead or do you have other advice well you know what I'm what I'm seeing out there in on the Canadian side is that the, we've got these government programs that have kind of been applied equally across the country, but the pandemic's impact hasn't been equal across the country. So where I am in the Maritimes, we've been spared a lot of the lengthy lockdowns that you guys have suffered through up in the greater Toronto area. And so we're seeing a lot of different things. So when I talk with business owners here locally... Um, a lot of them are flush with cash because they've qualified for a lot of these programs and they're just kind of sitting on that money because they don't know what's going to happen, right? If there's a If there is another lockdown, they're worried they're going to need that money. Other people, you know, their business legitimately is down because there's these travel restrictions, for example. So people in hospitality are having a hard time. And if you're in Toronto and you literally, I saw something on Twitter the other day that talked about how many days in 2020 gyms were allowed to be open. You know, those people are having a really hard time. And so even with all the government supports, some of those people may still not be able to make it. But the, the, the big danger here is that I see this all the time with people in small businesses. They get caught up in, in the sunk cost fallacy where they look at the history of time that they've worked on their business and they say, I've got 15 years of effort put into this business. I, I want to see it through. And I would, I would actually suggest that they need a little bit more short-term thinking. Um, is there a way for me to figure out how to make money with this? And if not, is there a way to, for me to figure out how to so drastically reduce my costs that I'm willing to sort of have this empty shell of a placeholder ready to to blossom again once things can open? I know someone in the travel industry. All their employees are laid off. Their office isn't even manned every anymore. They've got a sign on the window saying, call this number and leave a voicemail right? So they they managed to shrink themselves to the tiniest possible size they can with the idea being that they're going to, you know, sort of come back when they're able to. But if you can't figure out a way to make money, then the question is, how do you extricate yourself? Because the worst thing that I've seen happen is people who keep going into their personal resources to try to keep a business alive. Um, because what will happen is, you know, these unknown things are going to continue to happen potentially. And you may end up, you know, over at the Hoyes Miklos office.
0: Yeah. And it's very hard because what you're telling people to do is predict the future. You know, so you, you give the example of a gym, you know, a fitness club, something like that. So, okay, when this is all over, will it return to normal or have people said, you know what, I figured out how to do workouts at home. I go for a run. I ride my bike. I go skiing, whatever. And so the gym is not part of my life anymore. And really, when the pandemic's over, I don't want to go back there because, oh, you know, I'm much more aware of germs and things like that. So how do I, as a gym owner, decide whether the future is going to look like the past? You talk about sunk cost fallacy, you're also referring to recency bias. Well, I remember what it was like. Is it going to be in the future? A better example, perhaps, is haircutting places. So, you know, we're all used to having longer, bushier hair. We, you know, we all have gray hair now because we can't get it colored anymore. And when this is all over, it's like, you know what? I'll just keep doing that. I've learned how to do a trim instead of getting a haircut every three weeks. I'll get one every four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. So the business will never be back again. So how do I, as a business person, decide whether once this is over, things will be full speed ahead or whether my business is actually not viable going forward?
1: Well, it, it, I don't think you can. And, and here's what I'm seeing when I'm working on business deals with people that are in places that have for more fully opened up again. So I'll give you an example. Um, you know, in, in the early 2020, the lockdown happened pretty much everywhere in North America. But some American states have fully, you know, gone to, uh, to no rules anymore. They're, they're back in full swing. And so when I'm working with people on evaluating some of these businesses, Um, If they show me that the last three months, for example, of 2020 were the same as the results from the last three months of 2019, it's very easy for people to agree that this business has recovered. And so people are willing to kind of ignore the 2020 financials and look at valuing those businesses based on what happened in 2019. As these bad years grow, so if 2020 and 2021 are bad for you, it becomes increasingly difficult for anyone looking at, at those results to want to agree that the business will snap back to what it was in 2019. Uh, you mentioned how people's habits change. I think the longer the disruption of the of normal behavior is, the more likely it is that people have developed these new habits. And so, you know, my big concern about you know, especially you guys up in Ontario with this this long dragged out uh, lockdown that you've suffered uh, up there, is that um, the patterns have been broken. And so now if somebody, for example, wanted to sell their business, if it if it was in a dip in 2020 and 2021, they may have to wait until they have a year or two of post-pandemic results before someone's willing to fully ignore what happened during the coronavirus pandemic.
0: So the business deals that were in progress when this all started March of 2020, March of 2020, What happened? Did they all just die?
1: Well, a lot of them died, but not for the reasons you might think. So I was working with a couple of different clients in Ontario who were making very good deals to buy the assets of businesses that were kind of marginal. So these buyers believed they could do more with these businesses than the current owners were. And when the SEBA and the Qs and the, the rental subsidy and everything came in, the sellers backed out because suddenly these businesses became very profitable with the government interventions. So, so there's been a distortion in the marketplace from things like government aid. Um, there have been, uh, I'm on the email list of several business brokers in, in the Toronto area. And so for businesses that were largely not affected, think about industrial construction, manufacturing, um, the deal making and stuff seems to be going per normal in those sectors. And I'll give you an example of one. Uh, this is a, a restaurant deal that happened. <clears throat> the probably pre-pandemic, this restaurant would have sold for about $400,000. It was affected by the lockdown. They had a large dining area. And um, the ultimate purchase price ended up being about two fifty. dollars Now, here's the terms of that deal. The seller only got one hundred eighty dollars on closing. Another 20000 was held by the lawyer who did the closing for 12 months with a caveat that if there was a second government lockdown of dining rooms, that $20,000 would go back to the buyer to be a little bit of an extra cushion if, if the dining room had to close again. And the last 50000 is being held for three years if the business has three consecutive months with results equal to the 2019 results in the three years after closing, then the last 50,000 becomes payable. So the the buyer basically is saying, I'm only willing to pay you this price we've negotiated in full, if it turns out in fact, the business I received really does recover back to what it once was.
0: Wow, so the sale might be done at 50% of what it otherwise would have been done, Might be might be lower, might be higher. Yeah. What is the impact of these government programs? So you mentioned a few there. You mentioned Q's C-E-W-S, the Canadian Emergency Wage Subsidy, which mm-hmm. covered wages up to a point for businesses that had suffered a considerable revenue reduction. So if your revenue went down by, you know, I think it had to be at least 30% or 50% or whatever it was, then you could have, there was a wage subsidy that covered up to, 75% of your employer's employees' wages up to a certain max per employee, you know, 50 grand per employee or whatever it was. And then that over time, that number has kind of ground down as the economy's reopened, the, the subsidy is not there as much and will eventually end. Um, You mentioned the rent subsidy. So same thing. I believe the way that worked, the landlord originally, when it started, the landlord had to apply and the landlord had to agree to cover 25% of the rent. The the, the tenant had to pay 25% and the government kicked in the other 50%. So those two things obviously had a significant positive impact on a business because their rent costs went way down and their mm-hmm. wages cost went way down. Now, if you were a hair salon and your revenue went to zero, well, it doesn't really matter what my rent is. I don't have any employees and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of toast anyways. But how important what were those government programs and what do you see the upshot in the future of those being?
1: Well, I I think that um, they held us off from being in a devastating immediate you know depression, right? Um, I think that the ultimate result is still yet to be seen. So, you know, in my own business, um, when the lockdowns first happened, just after I met you up in uh, Ontario, uh, Doug, um, everyone was stuck watching the TV, going, "Oh my God, what's going to happen now?" My phone stopped ringing, so I applied for SIBA. And you know, got the forty thousand dollar loan, and then a week later, things started to move again. And I realized that maybe my business, you know, wasn't about to collapse. And so, you know, that money's still sitting in the bank account. And so, I'm likely going to repay that loan uh, with the cash that they gave me. Right, just hand it back in. There are a lot of other people in that situation out there. There, what I'm also seeing though is a lot of, you know, in the world of small business, Doug, people tend to do things that. Manage their tax liability. You, you've heard of this before, maybe. We you know personal expenses sometimes end up in the in the business stuff. But what I'm starting to see as well are these um, undeclared receivables and payables. So I was talking with a with a construction company, and they were talking about how they have this increasing pile of payables. They know they owe to subcontractors, but they haven't been billed for yet because of course a lot of the programs you just mentioned were based upon having a certain percentage decline in revenue. And so people are playing these games where they're not submitting bills because they want to make sure they qualify for the government aid. And so as this unfolds over the next year or so, um, we could see another whole series of unintended consequences unfolding.
0: Yeah. So let's break that down a bit. So let's say I am a, I don't know, a roofer. I build roofs on buildings. And obviously, there was a, an initial shutdown. And so maybe my my business stopped. I want to keep my revenue below the limit so that I can qualify for some of these subsidies. So I'll keep working on building your roof, but I won't issue the bill for it yet. That's what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so <laughs> me as the customer who's buying the roof, it's like, okay, well, I, I'll pay you when I need to, but I'll just keep my cash in the bank too, which I had set aside. And, you know, we, we survive on the, the government subsidies, but at some point, okay, the government subsidies end. So now I pay for the roof and and you bill it. That seems to me like, okay, well, so life gets back to normal. Then what are the unintended consequences that you're worried about in a situation like that?
1: Well, it just, it just starts to, there's a departure from what's shown on paper and what's real. And so when people are looking at doing the business purchases and sales, one of the things that often can muck things up is if things get deferred from one period into the next. And I sometimes see this with small businesses that aren't very sophisticated. They kind of get mixed up between accrual and cash accounting. They might buy stuff and expense it all when it really should go into inventory and things like that. And you end up getting expenses or revenues that belong in one period being reported in another. And this can then suddenly start to show the business having much larger swings or changes from one year to the next. And it, it just, it creates a greater opportunity for people to have even a lower degree of confidence in what they're seeing on paper. And it it, it, can, it is going to cause some problems for some of these deals. Yeah, because none of it's real.
0: I'm, yeah. I'm looking at the numbers. I don't know if they're real or not. And, and for those watching who are not accountants, you know, cash versus accrual cash is exactly what you think. Okay. The money comes in, there's the cash. Whereas accrual is I'm going to spend the next few months building this roof. And then at the end, I get the cash for it. While I've been incurring the expenses all the way through. So accrual accounting is I'm recording the revenue and expenses as it happens, not when mm-hmm. the cash actually comes in so that I can, I can more accurately balance it out. So the government funding, let's assume that it essentially winds down so that by the end of the summer, the end of the fall, whenever it is, it it no longer exists. Do you think there will be a flood of businesses at that point who say, well, I was only surviving on these subsidies, I'm shutting down now?
1: Well, I think it's going to depend on what the business activity is at that time. And so you could have a business that once relied on foot traffic in a you know dense downtown office area and they've been surviving on these subsidies and programs. When things wind up with these government programs, are the office workers going to be back? Will they be able to run a profitable business at that time? And if not, well, with no assistance, they're either going to have to make a new deal with the landlord, try to cut their costs so that they can make money in that moment, or they're going to be done. The, the other thing too, is that you've got businesses who've been accumulating a lot of debt to stay open, the, the people who to who the government programs aren't even enough, right? And I can see that when things reopen, they may start to get more business. But as you know, if you end up with too many debts, even if the business recovers, you may still not be in a position where you'd be able to service those debts and take care of everything else you have to. So we could still see some of those businesses sort of, sort of choking on that debt and they could end up failing in the next year anyway, even if things recover.
0: Yeah. If I, again, am a hair salon and I've been closed for most of the last year, year and a half, my landlord may have agreed to apply under the rent subsidy. So maybe I only owe 25% of my rent, but I have zero revenue. So what am I supposed to do? So I probably applied for the SBA loan and which mm-hmm. was originally a $40,000 loan, I think they bumped it up in some cases to 60,000 and the deal with the SBA loan was so long as you paid it back by the end of this year or next year, I can't remember exactly, then you only had to pay back 30 out of the 40. So it ended up being a, a bit of a grant. Okay, great, but if I've had no revenue and I've used that SBA loan to be paying my 25% rent, well, now I'm I'm back I can't pay the loan back because my, I'm still dipping into my my cash flow. What we've really done in a lot of cases is kick the can down the road then. Isn't that mm-hmm. what's what's happened?
1: It's exactly what's happened. And, and I think that you had a show um, maybe in the last year or so where you talked about, you know, someone trying to get out of debt and they need to look at how much they owe and the interest rates, but also – the, what I refer to as qualities of the debt. So, is there a personal guarantee on it, or is it secured against something? Like, what what are the conditions around those debts? Because the the Siba loans and things are pretty, you know, liberal in the way that they're set up. You know, I don't believe that the owners of the businesses have a personal guarantee on those. It's a, a loan to the business, and so. Um, Other things that people are involved in in small business, a lot of times suppliers want you to personally sign a guarantee on on amounts you might owe them and things like this. If you're in trouble, I would be making a, a very detailed list of all the different places and things that I owed and what the conditions and circumstances are of those different debts so that if things don't recover you can start to make some informed decisions about what you may try to get out of and what you may not, what you may have to accept is just going to be a loan that's going to default, um, which may or may not have repercussions for yourself personally. Sort of looking at what has the ability to sort of jump that firewall between your, your corporation, if you're set up that way, Uh, And your personal life?
0: Yeah, that's a key question. That's a discussion I've been having with many people over the last year because they thought, oh, well, I set up a corporation. And the reason I did that was so that I was insulated from personal liability. It's a separate legal entity. Yes, that's true, except to the extent you've personally signed. So a lot of landlords say, okay, you're a new business. I don't care that it's a corporation. I want you personally signing on the lease as well. And, you know, and you gave other examples of that. The other classic one would be things like GST, HST, employee source deductions that you've withheld. Those are deemed trusts, meaning you're holding that money for the government. Well, right. if you're the director of the corporation and the corporation can't pay, you're personally liable for that. So even though there's a corporation, there could be a whole lot of personal debts. and I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Make a list of every single debt. What's the amount? And is it just in the corporation's name? Is it just in my name? Or have I guaranteed it? And you, you may look at those numbers and go, wow, I've got a, a personal problem here as well as a, a corporate home. I agree with you on the SIBA loans. The loan documentations I've seen is that they are in the name of the corporation. They're not personally guaranteed. So, okay, I guess if my business can't reopen and I have to close the corporation, they can't come after me for that personally. But if I'm behind on you know, HST, GST, things like that, then I've I've got a problem. And you really have to get some professional advice on this talking to, you know, someone such as yourself who understands these things, an accountant, a lawyer, a licensed insolvency trustee, whatever it is, so that you you really know. Cause I worry that people get to the end of this, they reopen the business and then they realize, well, I got so much debt, it's it's going to fail anyways. Um, so what do you do? What's your advice for someone in that situation then they're looking ahead and they're going, okay, I operate in downtown and the foot traffic isn't going to return. And, and when things go back to normal and I got to start paying my full rent and all the rest of it, there's no way I can make a go of it. What do you do?
1: Well, I I think what this is going to do, and again, this, we're talking about a K shaped recovery. Some people are doing very well. Some people didn't really have much of a change. It's this group of people that have suffered That basically what has happened, if you run a profitable business for many years, you end up with a stronger and stronger balance sheet. You know, you pay down your debts, you have more equity, you become a stronger financially, you know, better base. Um, What this has done is it's dialed back the clock on a lot of these businesses and put them back into that unstable footing of being a startup. Where they're kind of back to the unknown, they don't really know what's going to happen. And so I would challenge people to think about their business as though it were a new business. And so would they be making the decision today to open a business with all the uncertainties and unknowns that exist moving forward with these debts and liabilities that they're accruing right now? Would that be something that they would choose to do at the current point in their life, right? You know, a lot of the times when you start a business, maybe you're in a different family situation as far as dependents, mortgage obligations, et cetera. And so think about it like a startup. So when most people start a new business, they're willing to accept a certain amount of risk, but they will create a plan. And usually they have an idea of where that line in the sand is where you know, I'm willing to suffer some losses or a growth period where I'm trying to hit break even, but I'm not willing to go beyond this certain level. And, and this has to do with undoing the sunk cost mindset is you wanna look at it as though it's a brand new enterprise. And what am I willing to risk before I'm going to pull the plug and go get a job somewhere or move somewhere or do something else? I think that um, for, you know, here in the Maritimes, I'm meeting a lot of people from Ontario. And some people who have been in a rough spot financially with their business, they're looking at the opportunity to get out of their home at at this high market level. And they're just kind of packing everything up and they're, they're moving someplace else. So I think some people who've really done poorly, as far as their business, they've kind of already come to this realization that they don't want to try to go through that startup period again. But I think that's the mindset that kind of encapsulates this. The difference being, if you were going to open a food business near uh, you know, a big office complex 10 years ago in downtown Toronto, you at least had the certainty of knowing what the foot traffic was in that given location. You go look, right? And today, we don't know. There's so many things that we don't know, um, you know, as far as offices and occupancy and will employers be asking people to come back to places like that and just the the change in automotive traffic, you know, what was once a great place in you know, a suburban area for car traffic, you know, even those patterns have started to change because people aren't aren't driving as much as they used to.
0: Yeah, and I think that is fantastic advice. So I'm going to raise the subscription fee on this free podcast for that fantastic (laughs) advice that you just gave there. Think of your business as a startup. So it doesn't matter what you did over the last 20 years. It doesn't matter that, you know, you built this, this great business because things may have changed. The people who used to walk by your store may be working from home. They may not be coming back. The services that you provided people may be doing them, doing for them for yourselves. So if you were starting from complete scratch today, is this what you would do? And if the answer is, well, no, it's far too risky, then I guess that kind of answers the question about what you need to do in the future as well. And you're right. I've got lots of clients who have sold their home here in Ontario and said, hey, I can buy a home in New Brunswick for a fraction of what my condo sold for in Toronto. So Mm -hmm. why not take that equity, move to someplace cheaper. Life is easier. I can get a job working at the coffee shop four hours a day and cover my costs compared to uh, what it would be to to stay where I am. So, and that's a difficult decision for people to make because your business is also your identity. It's your life. You got to separate the two though.
1: Yeah. For a lot of people. And, and, you know, I've met you know, in my role as a business broker and a consultant helping people buy and sell businesses, I've met a lot of people who are in a difficult time in their business and then they think that selling is, is like uh, a way to escape from a bad situation. So they'll meet me and they'll say, I want to sell the business because I can't seem to make it work. And I'll say, well, you know, here's the problem, though, is that you've got a track record now of, of declining sales and you're not making any money. And now who's going to want to pay money to, to get into your shoes? Right. And so and, and this is the problem. And be, especially when people are so tied up in their personal identity, they think, well, this is how I'm known in the community as the owner of this business. And this is how people see me. This is what gets people to draw those personal resources into the business to try to keep it running longer than they should. And a business is supposed to feed you. But I've seen too many cases where businesses have eaten people alive and just, just consumed everything that they worked for their whole life. A business is an asset, it is a tool that is supposed to provide for you and your family by providing what your customers need, right? You make your customers happy, the business will keep you and your family, you know, with full bellies, and if it's not functioning that way, if it's not doing its job, then you have to think about it like an old car that keeps breaking down. You know, at what point does it no longer make sense to keep doing work on the car? It's obviously no longer an asset, it's become a liability, and when that happens, You get rid of it and so we need to look at these businesses the way that they're they're supposed to be assets and if it's not an asset then you have to make a decision about what it is and what i've learned is that the more decisive and more quickly you make that decision and then you're able to act accordingly the less overall pain is going to be suffered if you make a decision i'm going to close this business it may not mean that you're going to go bankrupt But it means that you need to pick up the phone and call a landlord and say, how are we going to work out the rest of this lease? Because this business can't afford to pay. And I don't personally have the resources to pay. And what would you like to do? And you may be surprised by what the landlord says. I've had people in business difficulty whose landlords have told them, I'd rather you be open every day while I find a new tenant than be faced with a vacant spot in my strip mall. And people have stayed on for a couple of months paying no rent because the landlord wants to give that prosperous appearance to the property. You you don't know what's gonna happen unless you're willing to have the difficult conversations. And, and, and basically you start acting upon the idea that you've decided to make a certain course of action. Yeah,
0: that's excellent advice. And I think that's a, a great place to end it. You think that, okay, this is crushing me, which it is, but it's also crushing my landlord, my suppliers, everyone else. And so I think a phone call is a, is an excellent place to start. And I think again, to throw the commercial in here, reaching out to professional advisors isn't a bad idea either because we are not personally invested in your business. We look Hmm. at the numbers, we don't have that history. And so we're able to be much more, um, you know, to the point and say, well, here's what the numbers show. This is what it looks like. And sometimes that, that third perspective or that second perspective is, is very important. So how can people track you down? What's the best place to find you? Tell us about websites, Twitter, MySpace, AOL, wherever it is, wherever it is you are these days.
1: Yeah, well, my blog site is davidcbarnett.com. And from there, you can find, uh, you know, all the different stuff I put out. I've got a YouTube channel and the audio is on a podcast. And I put out a new video at least once a week where it's always answering people's questions that are submitted about buying, selling, managing, or financing small and medium-sized businesses. And so if anyone out there has an interest in business and business deals, then I would I would recommend you find me and subscribe or get on my email list, what have you, um, and I, I endeavor to keep it as interesting as I can.
0: Fantastic. And yes, you, the, the videos are great. I will put a link in the show notes on YouTube to everything you just mentioned, to your website, to your YouTube channel. And yeah, if you're thinking of starting a business or you're trying to decide, should I keep my business going, what should I do? And you need someone to bounce some ideas off, then obviously they can track you down because you do work, like you said, throughout Canada and the U.S. So you don't have to be in uh, the province you're in to, to talk to you. Excellent. David, thank you very much for being here. I much appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Doug. It's always a lot of pleasure.
0: Excellent. Have a great day. And hopefully next time you can be back in the studio here and we'll uh, we'll talk again. Believe me, I miss Toronto. I'd love to get back soon. <laughs> the uh well, as do we all, because we're all we're all confined to our basement. So uh that was uh David Barnett. And as I said, I will put links in the show notes to everything we talked about. I think operating a business is very difficult and given what we've come through is even more difficult. So plotting out what the future looks like is difficult, but it's kind of an exercise you've got to do. What kind of revenue do I think I can generate? What debts do I have? And am I going to be able to service them from the revenue? And do I have to extricate myself in some other way? Something you've absolutely got to think about. And as I said, I'll put resources in the show notes to how you can go about doing that. That is our show for today. Thanks for listening. Until next week, I'm Doug Hoyes. That was Debt Free in 30.